Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going to have some fun today on Access Utah. All this week we have uh, gone to the archives, uh, pulled out some best of Access Utah episodes. And uh, coming up on Wednesday, we're going to talk books. We do a lot of author interviews. We're going to have Elaine Thatcher and Scott Hammond in and hear from Ron Chernow, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, and Scott Hammond. And on Thursday, we'll talk about race in America. We've done uh, several episodes on race issues, and we'll have Jason Gilmore in. We'll talk about Black Lives Matter Charleston, Nicole Hannah-Jones with her letter from Black America. We'll hear from Sherman Alexie, and we'll talk with visual artist Paul Vanus. We got into a very interesting discussion with him regarding race and DNA. Today, I have with me in studio uh, USU uh, assistant English professor, uh, teaches folklore, Lynn McNeil. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Uh, Seems like, Lynn, uh, every time we have you in, we have a lot of fun. I think so. Every time I come in, I think we end up devolving into a Star Trek I think we fandom. Do. <laughs> you know, you and I are too yeah. too excited about yeah, that yes, show. Yes, very excited. Lots of other good discussions as well. And uh, any day you can uh, you can hear some Klingon is a good day. Too true. Which includes today, which awesome. we'll, we'll have some some uh, some Klingon. Uh, so we'll hear a little later on a program we did fairly recently in July uh, on uh, fandom. The idea of what do fans own. This is uh, based on an incident where uh, Paramount is uh, suing some quote-unquote fans who are uh, had planned a very high-budget uh, uh, spinoff from uh, from Star Trek universe. Uh, so that got us into talking about uh, what, what do fans own and uh, what do they not own. Uh, later in the program, also, we'll hear from my interview with uh, the great Rita Moreno. We'll hear some music, so that's uh, coming up. Let's launch in with a program that... Uh, you and I and Charlie Heenemann, a USU philosophy professor. Charlie fits in this category. Anytime Charlie shows up, it's a lot of fun. Um, so we did a program in April of 2015, um, and uh, Charlie Heenemann had written for Three Quarks Daily, saying that we all seek to capture the world with the net of language, yet it's in the nature of nets to capture some things and let others slip away, and that goes for languages too. And so we got into talking about the limits of language, the impulse to create the perfect language and uh, international auxiliary languages and fictional languages. That was a fun discussion. A lot, a lot of fun. I think all three of us love language and, and talking about language. So uh, in this uh, part of the, of the episode, we got talking about um, invented languages. And uh, so let's, let's hear this. Uh, let's uh, return to uh, one of the most popular invented languages. Lynn, earlier you said the fictional languages. Mm-hmm. Are perhaps have a better chance of success. Yeah, I think when a language can be paired with a culture that we find rich and appealing, um, it it takes on more comprehensibility to us, Klingon being an excellent example. And a big part of that, I think, it's, it's interesting talking about this question of fabrication to what ends. This is something folklorists deal with a lot. We actually have a, a term, fake lore, <laughs> for something that has been devised to look a lot like folklore and be passed off as folklore, but somewhat disingenuously, that is not actually a product of the people, but is sort of the creation of one person. And that never, people feel duped when that happens. But fiction lets us off the hook mm-hmm. with something like that. No one's trying to claim Klingon as non-fictional. They're presenting it as hypothetical or yeah. or as as possible. And if we picture not that everyone is as large a Star Trek fan as I am, but mm. I'm sure most of us can picture a Klingon 
you know, so, <laughs> and the the clothing they wear, the the hairstyle details, the the bearing their own carriage of themselves, the way they speak, the way they act fits that language. Mm -hmm. And more than the words, I think it's that encapsulation of a culture that that rings true, that mm -hmm. that, you know, that magic alchemy of coming together well enough to to truly generate interest. I grew up with a, you know, Burlitz travel guide to the Klingon language. It was called <laughs> Easy Everyday Klingon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it it was I never mastered the language, mm -hmm. but it was wonderful to to think that that a fictional creation had led to to something like that. And then, of course, Tolkien Good. is the incomparable yes. master yes. of this. Yes. I mean, he, mm. he knows more about his fictional folklore than we do about many real folklore I mean, situations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that so, folk culture gives those peoples and that world such a legitimacy yeah. that that it would lack if they didn't have differing turns of speech or different food ways among the different peoples of Middle Earth. Mm -hmm. You can distinguish them culturally so clearly. Mm -hmm. I actually had a student who used to write me messages in Elvish on the backs of her quizzes. <laughs> and I was always, you know, I had to go online <laughs> to translate them. I wasn't able to myself. But I always thought how wonderful that that that's even possible. Right. What, are, what are you, uh, so you had this Berlitz guide to Klingon. Uh, your student writes in Elvish. What what are you trying to experience? What are you trying to? What's the impulse behind that? You know that is an excellent question. My my first instinct is to say that engaging a language is one of the best ways to engage a a world, uh, an in culture existence, and. I think these fictional creations are so appealing. I mean, who doesn't want to live in Middle Earth? Mm -hmm. Well, not during the bad times, I guess. Right. Um, but that's that's such an appealing idea. I, I think it's the same impulse that makes us really want to go to Paris and read in a cafe and mm -hmm. speak French and eat baguettes. You know, mm -hmm. it's well, only now we have even more fanciful, fantastic worlds in which we can do that. And someone has gone through the work of providing us that access, that's mm -hmm. really an incredible feat. The, the Austrian philosopher Wittgenstein wrote that the limits of my language are the limits of my world. And so by learning these other languages, we exactly right. We develop, we can dwell into other worlds, right? I promised Shakespeare in uh, Klingon. This was a, a, a troupe in Minnesota that put on Hamlet in Klingon. Uh, first of all, Lynn McNeil, it's it's it kind of blows your mind if if you to, to, so for those of you who don't know, but Star Trek and Klingon, Klingon is a warrior race, um, so death and honor and uh, you know strict rules about honor and uh, and war. Mm -hmm. So that's that's what Klingons are about. So it's kind of hard to envision a Klingon Hamlet who's dithering, you know. Uh, but but anyway, they the, this the troop put this on, and so what we hear is a bit of the to be or not to be uh, speech. Just imagine a Klingon warrior with his with his Klingon uh, you know weapon. Batleth. Yeah, Batleth is what that's about. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, so here it is. We won't it, and we killed it. Call this sickness. This sickness, sick, more, more, catch one, cook, yin, ne, more, oh. 
rechtbak. Het kipko boven. Mij ha ta hit. Dotsu himwe. Rose mim so you kind of get the idea. It's uh, anything in Klingon sounds angry, right? Uh, you'd have to know the Klingon culture and the language to get the nuance. But Well, this is a long-running motif in Star Trek culture, the Klingon fascination with Shakespeare. This is something that crops up again and again. And, and the, the forms of Klingon art that are, that are commonly portrayed are things like opera and theater and things like this. And and I think it's meant to stand in contrast um, or perhaps to highlight the value of the arts within a warrior culture, that this isn't brutish and and unthinking. This is a, a cultured form of, you know, as you described, honor and, and the, the culture of a warrior. And I think this is a really nice example of how it how it's best when you can create whether it's a contrast or a perfect cohesion between culture and language, we see this all the time. I saw King Lear set in the Old West, um, and that was a sort of purposeful contrasting of times and ideas and what do these words mean when we put them in a different context and everyone's wearing cowboy hats and dusters and carrying rifles around. And it, it makes you think on those words differently. The words set in different contexts take on different meanings, and it, it opens our ability to appreciate the words themselves when we recontextualize them this way. Hmm. Charlie, you mentioned uh, off-air, buddy, Dog Hamlet? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the great playwright Tom Stoppard wrote a, a play called Dog's Hamlet, and it's a very interesting and complicated short play. But the, the basic premise is uh, we as an audience start watching these people going about their business, and they're speaking English words, but we don't understand what they're saying. But over time, gradually, we begin to get a sense for how their language works and how it's different from our own. But then these characters in the play put on a production of Hamlet, which then, of course, involves plays within plays within plays. So you've got so many different levels working. But these uh, the the players are speaking the words of Shakespeare without understanding what they mean, although we, of course, understand what they mean, but we can sympathize with their incomprehension. And so uh, by the end of the play, you have no idea how language works anymore because now you've heard words that you understand and also shared in the incomprehension of people who don't speak the language that we do. Mm. Uh, So uh, is there usefulness then in deconstructing it that way? Well, I think... uh, it's always useful to make ourselves more conscious of everything that language implies. Um, sometimes in pop culture, we hear uh, complaints about political correctness and so on and policing our language so as not to offend anybody. And granted, th- those efforts can often go to ridiculous extremes. But the basic point is very sound and important that words carry a lot of force with them. And uh, what might sound like uh, a harmless word to you or me might strike somebody else very differently. And and words have political consequences. People can be left out of conversations. People can be, uh, you know, marginalized or hurt or uh, or made inferior just by words that we use. Um, And that's a it's a very deep topic and hard for us to think about because language is the water that we're swimming in Mm -hmm. and it's often what we're least conscious of. Mm -hmm. And so any kind of effort to make us more conscious of words and their power, I think, is to the better. Yeah. Lynn, I wonder, uh, I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal 
titled "What Will the World What the World Will Speak in 2115." This is John McWhorter. Um, and in brief, he says we'll have fewer languages. He talks about how we worry about loss of language. He predicts we'll have fewer languages. So that got me thinking, what's lost? If you lose a language, what's lost? That's a really great question. I think oftentimes what's lost is an entire perspective on apprehending the world. They're the the idea of poetry in multiple languages, languages having different abilities to express abstract ideas or different metaphors for the same idea. There was a wonderful article, I think, um, that came from NPR just recently about local terminology for mental health issues mm. and depression and how difficult it is for people who go into other countries and try and work with people suffering from PTSD and depression when the language doesn't communicate it perfectly. And the example that they use that I thought was so beautiful is that Cambodians don't have a word for depression. They have a saying, which is the water in my heart has fallen out. Mm-hmm. And the ability to, to treat people or to help people or to even just understand something like mental illness or, or depression becomes so difficult in, in trying to get around that language. But what just a perfect encapsulation of that feeling to say the water in my heart has fallen out. Mm-hmm. I don't ever have to have heard that before to know what that feels like because I know what sadness and, mm-hmm. and depression feel like. And in losing a language, we lose that. But again, there's that that language of loss and degradation. And I, I think we certainly don't want to ignore that, but we don't want to assume that's the only thing that's going to happen. We might end up with fewer institutionalized languages, but we will have developed slang, vernacular term, folk speech, for things we can't think of yet. Think of what selfie would have meant to someone before the invention of the cell phone or before the invention of the camera. I mean, we have adapted our language so vastly to accommodate the ways in which we interact with each other now, and it's pure utility. No one handed us a guidebook of, hey, everyone, there's this new communications technology, and here's how you're all going to – how you're going to describe these concepts. We developed it out of need and came to consensus astonishingly quickly. That's just a portion from our program from April of 2015 with Lynn McNeil and Charlie Heneman, searching for the perfect language. And we have with us in studio Lynn McNeil. Thanks mm-hmm. for thanks for being with us. Ted Twenting from UPR. Joins thanks us for having me as well. Um, Lynn, I'm I'm tempted just to launch into a discussion of language, but we we need to keep on task here. We're we're raising money for for Access Utah, but this uh, we're giving you some examples today of uh, some uh, some fun programs. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I when when I listen to Access Utah is usually in the mornings when I'm getting ready to head up to campus and making breakfast or tidying the kitchen and these are the kinds of discussions taking place. It's so engaging, it's so interesting. It's not just what's going on on the global scale, international news, national news, which is certainly also present on UPR, but Access Utah really brings interesting specific topics into my house so that I get to engage with these ideas every morning. I love it. And when I'm working with my with my, my staff, a wonderful uh, cracks uh, staff of students, what we're looking for is, uh, uh, what I look for is ideas or, or issues or stories 
the, the make the hair on the back of my neck stand up mm-hmm. or make me say well, I really want to know more about that or or make me make me go wow that's I'm I'm looking for the wow one of those moments where you're talking back to the radio it's yeah. a, it's a real conversation and one thing I love is that we not only talk about such great things such as uh, you know public lands initiatives or uh, amazing authors but also how we talk about that as we just heard um, the words that we use the nuance the discussion the way that we talk about things is very important so I personally love that about Access Utah. It's yeah. a it's a great and an in depth programming. I, I can't uh, resist a parenthetical uh, meandering into language. Um, I'm teaching a connections class. Oh, great! This semester, and uh, and so I told them last time I was with them that I wanted to keep it 100. <laughs> nice. And you should have seen their eyes. They were they were. And then I then I said, I believe our class is totally lit. <laughs> Well done, Tom. Yeah, uh, which I'd heard uh, mingling with them, which I barely know what it means, but I'd, it's positive, I think. Uh, and you see their eyes, they're, they're thinking, this does not compute. This 50-year-old guy should not know this lingo, right? So it's just, just fun to, to try to keep up, although at a certain age level, you can never, it'll always be dorky, right? Well, and it highlights the often limited access we have to other people's speech communities yeah. where when we hear someone talking in these words, they just, it's not even that they don't make sense. They just, it, it's sort of irrelevant to, to our experience mm-hmm. until you start hearing it enough that you extrapolate that contextual meaning of these things. And then as you did, you sort of have to put yourself on the line yeah. a little bit, yeah. try it out. Am try I using it. this that's, correctly? That's, that's, it's a process that we all go through somewhat unconsciously in junior high that yeah. just as we get farther and farther from other groups, modes of speech, we are much more conscious of it. Yeah. I told my wife I was going to consistently use that word so that it would, it would become out of <laughs> vogue. If I use it, they're never going to use it. Anyway, back to the fun drive. Um, so, uh, so Ted, the, the, the ways that people can support Access Utah, I hope, hope that you will. We have a couple different ways. Uh, I'd like to personally reach out to uh, fans of Access Utah and talk about the introductory membership level, which is only $36. That's $3 a month. And maybe this is your first time. Maybe Access Utah has opened your eyes to a subject that you maybe had a passing interest, no interest, or you're well-versed in. And I guarantee you got something from the program, regardless of your knowledge level. If you'd prefer to do it from the sanctity of your office or computer or cell phone or whatever the case is, you can also go online to upr.org. Uh, Lynn, uh, I was asked people this this uh, question. You usually people discover public radio, and then there's a lag time, and then they support public radio. Was was that the case with you? You know, it was only because I arrived. I first moved to Utah in 1999. I was a graduate student here at Utah State University, and I came from outside of Utah. I was a Californian, and I loved the sense of community in Logan, Utah. I felt incredibly welcomed here, but. I have to say it was over the years a slow growth of listening to Utah Public Radio and that growing sense that the more time I spent here, the more I knew people who were involved. Uh, and then at some point, you you know, the, the message gets through. So I guess the second question is, what's what's the message, do you think, that, that, that will really resonate to, to get people to actually become a member of Utah Public Radio. Because I think it dawns on people, and Ira Glass has talked about this, that, uh, you know, it dawns on people that, yeah, I can listen, and I cannot be a member, and it'll still, it'll still be there tomorrow, right? 
Um, but we we do need uh, you know a significant number of people to come on board to be able to to make it work. I can't speak for everybody else, but I know that for myself, it was definitely an issue of trust. It took me quite a long time to, um, I mean, I was listening and I was consuming and I was enjoying and I was learning, but it wasn't until I really fully trust that I decided to take the full plunge and make that membership uh, a commitment. And and it really is, you become, you become a stakeholder, you become part of it. You know that that is part of you and you were part of them. Yeah. It's, it's a great sense of community. Yeah. When you're a part of that community, it only makes sense to do my part to contribute. So I think it was, I was observing that community initially from the outside. And once I realized I was in it, which I think for me <laughs> was one of the first times that I listened to the Zesty Garden, which I know is no longer a program that we have, but, and I went outside and diagnosed my apple trees with, <laughs> with, uh, you know, that whatever that horrible apple condition is where it looks like they've caught on fire, fire blight, that's what mm -hmm. it's called. And I wrote into the program and said, what do I do? Mm -hmm. And they addressed it on the air. And suddenly I went, these are, are my people. This is my community. I'm no longer passive. I'm, I'm, I'm engaging with this. And from that moment on, I, I have been a pledging member of Utah Public Radio. And, you know, I'm also in it for the mugs. Let's be honest. <laughs> yes, I mean, got to. I have a collection of Utah Public Radio mugs displayed on the wall of my kitchen. I'm very proud of it. If a mug came and went and I didn't get it, <laughs> man, I'd be disappointed in myself. That's the way you know you're a part of the community. You know, mm -hmm. Jeff Foxworthy, uh, you might be a UPR member if. if you know. Exactly. And this year, yeah. the beanie. That is that's some really cute winter wear. So it, it, it will be the en vogue. Yes. Uh, fashion accessory of the year. Absolutely. And if you want to keep it 100 you can also go to $120, which gets you not only the beanie, but also the scarf. And one thing I want to say about these is we are actually working with a local uh, Logan, Utah company, the Logo Shop, right here on Main Street, to help bring you this. Again, it's just this, we are we are all the way in on this sense of community. And, um, these sort of local partnerships are definitely a big part of that. If this is something that uh, speaks to you and you, you're hearing it, and the great thing is at the very end, we'll definitely ask you for the comments. And those don't only go to the volunteer that are taking the pledges, but we talk about them at staff meeting. We, we, we mold them over and we take your words very seriously, just like we hope you take us as equally seriously. 800-826-1495. Join us at upr.org, upr.org, and there you can see all of those. Uh, you know, clothing items, the scarf and the beanie, uh, you'll get the uh, UPR member card as well, and you can find out about that as well. UPR.org, the place to go. We have with us uh, Ted Twinting and uh, Lynn McNeil. Lynn McNeil is Assistant Professor of English, teaches folklore, and uh, it, it seems like whenever she comes over to Access Utah, we have a lot of fun, so we're, we're, uh, we have her in when we're talking about fun and music. Later in the program today, we're going to hear a piece of uh, my interview with Rita Moreno, that was a lot of fun. Next up, uh, following a break, we're going to hear uh, a program from fairly recently based on an incident uh, where Paramount and CBS were suing the producers of a proposed fan-supported feature-length film called Axanar, set in the Star Trek universe. Got us thinking about what does it mean to be a fan and what do fans own or not own. That following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Bridger Folk Music Festival Society, presenting Three Hat Trio, music inspired by the deserts of southern Utah, Saturday evening, September 17th in Logan. Tickets and information available at bridgerfolk.org.
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm uh, here with uh, USU folklorist Lynn McNeil. Uh, Ted Twinting is joining us as well. We're doing uh, something different this week on Access Utah. It's the fun drive, and uh, so we are celebrating Access Utah, giving you uh, some of the best episodes uh, in our view, uh, some excerpts from those. And uh, we're doing themed days. Yesterday was public lands issues. Tomorrow will be uh, books. We'll have Elaine Thatcher and Scott Hammond with us. And on Thursday, we'll be talking about race issues in America. And Jason Gilmore will be uh, with us today. We're doing fun and music. And uh, we're going to uh, jump into a discussion. By the way, coming up, uh, Rita Moreno, discussion with uh, the great Rita Moreno. Um, Right now, uh, December of 2015, Paramount and CBS sued the producers of a proposed fan-supported feature-length film called Axanar, which was to be set in the Star Trek universe. Uh, one of the issues as dispute was the question, who owns the Klingon language? And can a language, albeit an invented one, be copyrighted? Harking back to the, uh, the discussion we just had. Um, some authors, like J.K. Rowling, author of Harry Potter, welcome fan-made books and movies, uh, but that got us in thinking, what does it mean to be a fan? And we discussed fan culture and ownership. We had with us attorney and writer Drew Clark, who wrote that uh, a piece uh, based on this incident. Uh, in the Deseret News, and we also had with us uh, Lynn McNeil. Let's hear a bit of this. I want to turn back to uh, Lynn McNeil, have you respond to the interaction between uh, interaction between fans and the, the original creation. Here's Drew Clark's question in his piece in the Deseret News. Do creators have any obligation to their readers and their fans who breathe life and energy into their creation? That's such a good question, and I, I think in an idealistic way, the answer would be yes, because these are these are the people keeping a franchise going, really. And and it's interesting to see the antagonism come out between a, the corporate owner of something and the people who all they want to do is love that thing as much as they can. And I think one of the conflicts that arises here is that we do this on an informal word of mouth, everyday culture level all the time when you go to a party and someone tells a really funny joke and a week later you're at another party and you turn around and tell that joke. You, It doesn't even cross your mind that you would owe royalties to the person from whom you first ho- heard the joke. That's how folk culture, that's how word of mouth culture goes, right? We hear urban legends, we pass them on, we find out a fun thing a family does on Christmas Eve and we decide to do it with our family and we don't pay them for that. We don't, we can even take characters from other stories like traditional fairy tales, Little Red Riding Hood and Sleeping Beauty and Rapunzel and smash them together in fun and new ways to entertain our kids as we tell them bedtime stories and we see movie studios doing that as well. Um, And so nowadays we have these copyrighted perhaps characters of you know Jean-Luc Picard or James Tiberius Kirk and we want to put them in our stories. We want to we want to play with those ideas. We want to do this. And I think for a long time, it similarly never crossed people's minds that that would be an issue, that a movie studio would come in and say, no, you can't play. You can't be creative with these characters. And I actually think nowadays we're seeing some examples where production companies and and directors and writers who are open to the enthusiasm of their fans actually generate much, much more fan appreciation than those who really try hard to shut it down. <laughs> and and it's an interesting question of of legitimacy that that really becomes dicey 
when that particular line is crossed. One of the recent examples that comes to mind for me is that just in December of last year, the song Happy Birthday was finally allowed into the public domain. People had been paying royalties to use that. Now, when the average everyday person thinks about the song Happy Birthday, you didn't learn that from your choir teacher. You didn't learn that, you know, in music lessons. You learned that from your parents and your friends when they sang it to you. That song belonged to everyone. And I know my students were always shocked to find out that that happy birthday was protected by copyright enough that you couldn't sing it on television. Mm -hmm. So we have all these silly alternative birthday songs that people have come up with, but it just feels like it belongs to everyone. And I think Mm -hmm. that's the way people feel about a lot of the pop culture around them. This, this is a thing I love. It's familiar to me. I'm going to play with it. I'm going to do things with it. Then let me just jump, let me Mm -hmm. just jump in on that point about play. And, And so this is where, again, technology is changing the way we relate to copyright. Before, you mentioned 1977, Star Wars comes out, people are coming home, they're, they're, they're playing, you know, but no one's taking a video of it, right? And, and the, the kind of the benchmark test for copyright is um, the fixation in a medium of expression. So, so basically, um, you know, if someone's playing, that's not fixed anywhere. It's not recorded. It's not, you know, painted or photographed. Then then it's ephemeral, and it is not subject to copyright in any way, shape, or form. But when people are playing with their cameras because they're so prevalent and cheap and, you know, my daughter wants to remix home videos and add in music, and, I mean, that's that's when you start, you know— Plain, literally, with the copyrighted terms, and and so a lot of times people will go back to a a um, an aspect of of copyright law called fair use, and it's an extremely important part. In fact, it's it, in my view, it's the only way copyright law can withstand First Amendment scrutiny is that there's this escape valve for fair use, and what fair use basically means is that you have some right to make a, a small use of a work, um, and there's a bunch of factors that are considered that really boil down to, are they competing with the market that is out there? So, you know, someone playing, I mean, if it, even if it were fixed, like recorded, someone playing with their lightsabers is not competing with the market, right? It's when someone does something like a, a parody, right? Like, so Gone with the Wind, someone did a, a, a takeoff version called The Wind Done Gone, which completely kind of told the story of the, the South and the Civil War from the, the perspective of the, the slaves on this particular plantation. So that, that was a, an actual case in which the owners of the, the estate of Margaret Mitchell sued the publishing company that wanted to put this book forward, The Wind Done Gone, and they, the, the case was dismissed because they had a fair use right to make to make use, even though there was a quote competing market, right? And so you do get into this question. So you know, is Axanar you know, a fan? It was just a fan film, and they weren't quote making money off it. Then Paramount might just say, okay, fine, you know, fair use. But when they're out there putting forth this as a professional amateur, you know, or a, a, an independent professional, I mean, that, that is a little weird, right? I mean, is it or is it not Paramount? Do they do they or do they not hold a copyright mm-hmm. over? this film franchise. And so they, they are reluctant uh, to allow something to compete with them. But it looks like, they again, they may come to some kind of accommodation after all. That would seem to be smart from Paramount's, uh, well, I, would, I would think, right, from you, Paramount CBS to, to 
I mean, you want to make money off it, but you don't want to be seen as opposing your fan base. You do. And the music industry had a terrible time with this when Napster mm. was around. I mean, they basically were suing their best customers, mm. right? People who wanted and loved the music the most. They were out there, you know, filing lawsuits against them. Uh, look, smart copyright holders find ways to allow for uses. And it's, it's kind of like the freemium business model. You give people a couple free versions and then... They, those who really become hooked will will subscribe and pay you and pay you a fee. So, um, I mean that that's that's kind of where a lot of businesses go uh, these days. Let's hear. You mentioned um, the wind ungone, and so that's printed work, right? We we couldn't really do that on the radio, but but uh, I thought of Carol Burnett. I don't know if you're familiar. <laughs> our audience probably familiar with Carol Burnett's "The Wind Ungone," which is a classic skit. And so we've got about a minute of this. In the middle of this, you'll hear about 30 seconds of laughter. That's, this, that's where Carol Burnett appears at the top of the stairs with her beautiful dress with the curtain rods still attached. <laughs> uh, she says she found this in the window. So this is, this is, you know, Gone with the Wind, their version, the wind, done, uh, the wind went with the wind. This is Harvey Corman, Vicki Lawrence, and uh, Carol Burnett. Let's hear a bit of this. I wish it will come true, Sissy. It like my dreams of... Went with the wind. What wind? <laughs> That's real pretty, but that don't answer my question. <laughs> what, uh, what brings you to Terra? You, you fixin' you. Style it. I love you. That, that, that gown is gorgeous. Thank you. I saw it in the window and I just couldn't resist it. Style it. I'm sorry. Maybe it isn't style it. Yes, it is style it. Style it. Yes. Will you marry me? Marry you? Why, you're the of the ocean and the chicken of the sea. <laughs> of course I'll marry you. That's uh, Went with the Wind, at least part of it, uh, Carol Burnett. She's found this in the window, and it's 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 the actual curtain <laughs> she's just put on with the rod attached. So that's parody, right? So Carol Burnett show can, sure, can, can sure. use that. So, yeah, basically uh, the the... The, the, the te- when you're when you're making fun of something, uh, you have a broader latitude with, with in fair use because there's not this issue of, you know, I mean, again, the the fair use factors include the commercial market, but they also includes the amount and proportion that you're taking, right? So the wind done gone the book actually sort of took lines of the 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 work and and re. Re- reused it, right? Uh, t- took uh, uh, substantial portions, right? And so, I mean, this didn't take anything from the. It just made a reference to, right? Which of course, which is allowed, right? You, mm-hmm. I can make a reference to Star Trek. I could even, you know, have have some some scene where you know, you know, Leonard Nemo walks on, right? And 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 there's there's a little bit of, of interaction. It's it's about the. The, again, it's about the amount, the, the extent. I mean, this, this Axanar film is completely living within the world created by Star Trek, right? Mm-hmm. Going to Harry Potter, I cannot go and, and build a Harry Potter wizarding world of 
you know, Drew Clark's world of, of Wizarding World of, of Harry Potter, well, I mean, I get a knock on my door. It's mm-hmm. it's not it's not my creation. It's it's the creation of the author and the person that the author licenses to to build that work. If I create my own imaginative work, then then I expect the same right under copyright law. We're kind of pushing the boundaries, right? What can you do without asking permission? That's a portion of a, an episode of Access Utah for December 2015, and you heard there uh, Drew Clark, who is an attorney and writer, and he wrote in the Desert News about this case where Paramount CBS are suing the producers of a proposed fan-supported feature-length film called Axanar, which was to be set in the Star Trek universe. And we had with us on that occasion Lynn McNeil, USU folklorist, assistant professor of English, and uh, she joins us again today. Mm-hmm. So thanks for, thanks for being with us. Ted Twenting uh, joins us as well. Lynn McNeil, um, I believe there, there have been some developments on that lawsuit. Yeah, there have. Um J.J. Abrams, the director of some of the recent Star Trek films, was speaking out against the lawsuit, saying that, you know, he wanted to support fans and fan engagement with all of this stuff and had hoped to convince Paramount to drop the lawsuit, which did not work, unfortunately. But in June, CBS and Paramount came up with 10 guidelines for fan films, which is interesting, again, reinstitutionalizing the the fandom model as a as an outcome. I'm not sure fans are happy. Mm. I don't think the Axonar folks are happy with this. But it's interesting guidelines, things like fan productions must be under a certain length. Um, if they include any commercially available Star Trek uniforms, accessories, toys, or props, they have to be official Paramount merchandise and not <laughs> bootleg commercial items of those things. You can see how how fuzzy some of this might get. Every fan film must contain the subtitle a Star Trek fan production. Oh, okay. Um, so there's there's a little bit of creative reigning in mm-hmm. going on here. I could imagine Paramount thinking that this is their compromise with fans, and mm-hmm. I could see fans seeing this as perhaps taking the fun and, and inventiveness out of a fan production. Yeah. Uh, so that, that, that was uh, very interesting issues and... and uh... And uh, great to be able to talk about these things. And anytime you can throw in some Carol Burnett is you know, oh. is, is, is a good day. <laughs> Always wonderful. Um, and so we are hearing some best of Access Utah, and we're encouraging you to support the, the program. Absolutely. And you can do that by going online to upr.org. And, you know, I just wanted to give a quick update on our overall campaign goals. So... In order to help us uh, keep bringing stories and talking about such issues like this, we need to raise $45,000 throughout this pledge. I'm happy to say that we are at about 27% of that. Uh, We have a goal this hour of $750, so go online, pledge your support, upr.org or 800-826-1495. That's upr.org, upr.org. Uh, Lynn, you were saying that you, you've got the number memorized. Yeah, you know, I find myself standing around the house and the pledge drive's going on in the background and the phone number comes on, 1-800-826-1495. And I realize <laughs> I know it. It's just like tattooed on my brain at this point, which just to, to tie in this most recent segment about fandom, I think it's really appropriate. Fandom is defined technically by an active engagement with source material. You can watch a television show and not be a fan of it. Fandom means that you're not simply absorbing or taking in content, but you're giving it back. You're doing something that engages the material beyond passive viewing. 
And I think that that's what's happening here at UPR. You're you're a fan of Utah Public Radio, not because you listen every day, but because you engage back with that material. And a way that you do that is by becoming a member and and joining and supporting the station. And that really embodies that appreciation in a way that passive listening doesn't. You don't really count as a fan if you just hear it. You really right. need to turn back around and put something of yourself into something. And you do that by becoming a member of Utah Public Radio. If you renew in the fall, this is the perfect time to do so. If you uh, are a potential new member to Utah Public Radio, really encourage you to go to upr.org, upr.org, and uh, take care of that. And, uh, Ted, that's a there seems to be a bit of a barrier there. If, you, if you've never done it before... You might have some concerns about it, but uh, people tell us that uh, that it's a wonderful uh, experience. Once you cross that threshold, become a member of Utah Public Radio. Absolutely. You you get that ownership. I mean, how many times, just to further go on the point we were talking about earlier, have you started a conversation with that story I heard on NPR or um, Access Utah talked about this or something along that? That sort of active engagement. And then perhaps you shared on Twitter or or Facebook, or whatever the case is, and uh, that is becoming a part of your day. Um, Again, you can go to upr.org. Let's take a break, and when we come back, we will uh, hear from the great Rita Moreno. She uh, reached her last year by telephone. She was coming to USU for an event. Uh, She's in her early 80s, but uh, she's she's still got it, and we'll hear from Rita Moreno. We'll hear some music uh, as Access Utah, Best of Access Utah, continues following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah State University Alumni Association, celebrating Homecoming Week with a Saturday morning parade on September 24th. Information at usu.edu slash homecoming. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're doing something special this week. Uh, we're doing the best of Access Utah, reaching back to some of our favorite episodes uh, to, uh, frankly, try to get you to the phone or, or, the, uh, or the website to give to Utah Public Radio. And uh, the website is upr.org, upr.org. Uh, today we're, we're looking at some of our fun episodes, uh, music episodes. We have with us uh, USU folklorist Lynn McNeil, and we have Ted Twinting uh, in studio with us as well. Uh, in October of 2015, Rita Moreno uh, was coming to USU. We reached her uh, by telephone. Rita Moreno is in her early 80s, but uh, still uh, uh, spitfire. You'll hear her in this uh, interview. And uh, she had a new album out in Spanish, Una vez más, uh, where, where she collaborated with Emilio Estefan. And uh, we'll hear a bit about that and a bit uh, from a song from that album. Let's uh, hear a portion of this interview with Rita Moreno. I was oh, promoting my uh, my album for an entire week, and I almost got murdered by my fellow Puerto Ricans with love. <laughs> with love, well, that's the good kind of murder, I guess. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's but boy, that's, they can—they they are so proud. They're just—it's—it's it's really quite lovely. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. I'd like to start there. So, how did this how did this album come about? Una vez más. I was at a. Um, at a, a museum event where they were giving out awards for great architecture. And I spotted Emilio Estefan across the room, and I didn't know him. And I wanted to meet him because I've always admired his work, and I admired him. And I, I got up to him, and I extended my hand, 
And I said, hello, I've been wanting to meet you for so many years. I'm Richa Moore. And before I got to Moreno, I hear him saying, you got to do an album with me. <laughs> That's great. And I said, excuse <laughs> me, you got to do it. And I said, uh, I, I really was nonplussed. I had actually never been asked to do an album, and certainly not in Spanish. Anyway, we talked a little bit, and then I said to him, but you know, I, I'm flattered to pieces, but at the time I was 82, I'm 83 now. I said, I'm 82, how do you even know I have a voice? And he said, I happened to see Joel at the Screen Actors Guild Life Achievement Awards, and uh, I ended my acceptance speech with uh, a piece of song, a cappella. As I approach the prime of my life, I find I have the time of my life. Learning to enjoy at my leisure all the simple pleasures. And so I happily concede this is all I ask this is all I need and, uh, and finally to quote my younger self, I leave you with this. Hi, Brad. No, that's not what I meant to say. <laughs> I leave you with this. So let the music play as long as there's a song to sing. And I will be, I will be younger than spring. Thank you. Thank you, SAG AFTRA. Thank you, fellow actors. Thank you. And he just loved my voice. He said, you have a wonderful voice. We got to do this. Blah, 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 in his wonderful Cuban way. And I went home thinking, well, let's see if he really means it. And within a week, I got the phone call from him. We started to do a deal. And, and uh, within two weeks, I had 24 discs with songs in Spanish from him, uh, from which he said, choose what you like. And if there's some things of your own that you would like to include, put that on the list. And that's how it happened. And it happened really quickly. It happened within months. Yeah, I think we finished it in March recording because I would fly to his studio in Miami whenever I had the time. And uh, that's how we did it. And it's now out. And uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to say that I was just in Puerto Rico promoting the album. And uh, it was at the Walgreens where they sell records. And they expected about 200 people, and they kept running out of uh, albums. And about 600 people showed up. Wow. 
<laughs> Which That's is, uh, you know, I'm impressed. Yeah. If this was uh, Taylor Swift, it would be thousands and thousands, <laughs> but I'm not Taylor Swift. <laughs> That's right. And I was just absolutely polaxed. It was a fabulous experience. Mm. Then what was fun is that the album opens with the, the first track is a song about Puerto Rico that's very famous in Puerto Rico that sings of its beauty and its glories. So that's how the album begins. Yo sé lo que son los encantos de mi morinquen hermosa por eso la quiero yo tanto Por siempre la llamaré preciosa Isla del Caribe At one point when people were getting very hot and tired, I said, why don't we all sing the song? Because everybody knows the lyric to that. You know, it's like singing the Star Spangled Banner. No, it's better than that because most people don't know the words to Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> anyway, we put, on, we put on the track and I sang to my own track and, uh, and my own voice also. And they sang it and it was wonderful. God, what a great experience. Wow. This is your first album in Spanish. Ever, ever. Yeah. And uh, before you ask, nobody ever asked me before. Okay. The question right. everyone asks is, well, why now and not then? Nobody ever asked me. Yeah. You know, people assume that if you want to do something in show business that you can. Well, not always. Mm. And that's something that uh, would have called for somebody to say to me, I would like to make an album with you. And uh, it was Emilio Estevez. And I, at the age of 82, now almost going to be 84, doing an album. I am beside myself with happiness. Preciosa, preciosa, te llaman los hijos de la
That's Rita Moreno. That's uh, from her album Una Vez Más. And uh, that's produced by Emilio Estefan. Um, and uh, in, in that uh, conversation, we talked about uh, discrimination, how the people wanted to typecast her as a Puerto Rican, uh, how she fought against that. She's uh, become a role model to a, a, lot, of, uh, a lot of younger actors. Uh, and she's one of the few people that uh, have a, what did you call it, Lynn? An EGOT? EGOT, EGOT, which is? The Emmy, the Grammy, the Oscar, and a Tony. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, she's uh, Impressive. Wonderful. So that's, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with, uh, with Rita Moreno. That's uh, just an example of some of the music interviews that, uh, that we do here on, uh, on Utah Public Radio. And we hope that uh, you enjoy these as well. And we're asking you to, uh, to pitch in just a bit, become a member of Utah Public Radio. You can do that by going to upr.org. I would really like to encourage somebody from Ogden, maybe, to give us that first pledge of $36. That's only $3 a month. That's basically a coffee or hot chocolate a month to help support programming that you've come to know, love, and depend upon. Again, that's upr.org. You know, Lynn, I have to, uh, some, sometimes I have to check to see if uh, whether I'm being self-indulgent. Sometimes, we, I, you know, we have ideas, and I think, oh, yeah, I'd love that. Uh, will the listeners love that? <laughs> so I have to, have to check with my staff to see if, you know, do, do you like this as well? Uh, anything regarding language. Oh, yeah. I'm going to want to do because I, I grew up with it. My yeah. father's an English major, love language. I think you've got great taste, Tom. So I think it's you should trust your instincts. Okay, okay. thank you. And that thank could just be that, yeah. that I also am <laughs> interested in topics like language right. and <laughs> fandom and things like that. But there's also unexpected connections to things. Rita Moreno, to me, may have seemed like an an actress from the past who my parents might have more connection with, but people probably don't know she was the voice of Carmen Sandiego for those who That's were right. young in the <laughs> 90s. Right, yes. She shaped an enormous perception of popular culture that, that a lot of people were engaged with, and that's one of those things you learn only from public radio. You yeah. get that way to connect to almost any topic. It's it's really a wonderful experience. I just learned that about 10 seconds ago. So oh, On public go. radio. On public radio. Yes. And how do you support public radio then? Go online to UPR, upr.org. But really just listening and talking about it and sharing, that is the, that's the crux of the issue. That's the best way that you can support us. But if you want to keep us going in the future... And upr.org. Upr.org is the place to go. Uh, I want to fit this in. Uh, this is uh, just an example of the fun we get back uh, from listeners. You'll get unexpected call callers. Uh, and this, we did a, a program on Driving America, a documentary film, which was showing on National Geographic Channel. And uh, we were uh, uh, talking with uh, executive producer Matt Bennett, talking about how Americans love their cars. And uh, then we got... We got this call. Let's oh, go to yeah. a let's go to a, another caller, Dan in Silver Springs, Nevada. Um, I think that's our first call hey, from yes. Silver Springs. Go ahead. Hi, how you doing? My Good. most memorable road trip was started out about four years ago. I took off on a little vacation, and I'm still on it. <laughs> really? I ended up becoming a truck driver. <laughs> really? Okay. Yep. Interesting. So that's what? It. Tell tell me a bit about that. You you were just going to hit the road, and then you decided to become a truck driver. You you liked hitting the road well, so much. What what happened? I hit, hit the road to get away from the ex, and did some thinking. Somehow I ended up riding with a couple truckers, and I kind of liked it. I've been doing it for now for four and a half years. 
That, well, that's amazing. That's amazing. And you're you're probably going to do this for a while. Uh, no, I'm getting ready to quit. Oh, okay. What what's next? I figured five, five years is going to be long enough for me. Okay. <laughs> so this road trip is coming to an end. What are you going to do next? Take it easy. Take t- <laughs> Relax. <laughs> Take Stay it easy. Home. <laughs> well, that's what you do after a road trip, especially a five-year road trip. Okay. All Have right, you been anywhere you. great? Yeah, Have you, you seen some great stuff? Oh, yeah. I've seen, I've seen some crazy things, too. I, I mean, I've seen most of 90, 95% of America. The only states I haven't been to is Alaska and Hawaii. I can't figure out how to make my truck float yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well, that's a great story. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate you sharing that. All right, no problem. Thank you. Yeah, get get some rest. Dan from Silver Springs, uh, Nevada. Uh, so you know you're you're going along talking about cars, and you get a, a great call like that. It's, uh, <laughs> we have great listeners, and and uh, so they they've been to some unexpected places. You're supporting uh, that sort of a conversation. We, we, you know, we do a lot of serious topics. We also try to let our hair down as well, and uh, that's an example of that's one of my favorite calls from the, to, the, from, mm-hmm. to the program. I like to imagine him driving cross-country, tuning into and out of all the local public radio stations right. <laughs> and hitting UPR and deciding mm-hmm. this is the one to call that's, into. That's what I'm going to call UPR. The discussion of road yeah, trips yeah. is the one I'm going to And if that's the case, I feel really good that, Absolutely. He, that he called us. Yeah. yeah. Actually, our very first pledge of this entire drive was from somebody who said that they moved here um, from Michigan. And as they were going across the country, they just kept tuning in and out, in and out, in and out. And they said that obviously they had listened to a lot of different public radio stations and that they were really happy that we were their local station as well mm. so uh they very first calls wrap it all together so uh, 30 seconds lynn mcneil uh, why should people respond and, and become a member of upr you know respond because in your heart if you're listening you already are you know it if you've been listening if you're listening to the pledge drive you are already <laughs> a member of this community you are already connected in do your part do that engagement that that gives back that isn't just taking what you're getting from this radio station, but giving back to it, actively engaging in your part of this community. Thank you. UPR.org is a place to go. Uh, Ted, your 30-second elevator radio pitch. I just think it's that real sense of community. It's the real sense of being part of something, and it's a sense of hoping to help other people have that in the future as well. Online at UPR.org. Well, uh, thank you very much, Lynn McNeil. It's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure for me, too. Thanks, Tom. Uh, anything quickly coming up for the USU Folklore? You know, program? we're going to be having our Folklore Club's annual activity in October at some point. Okay. Usually we get together somewhere haunted and tell good, scary stories. And we have the Fife Folklore Honor Lecture coming up before that on October 5th, where we have visiting folklorists come and give talks. So keep an eye out for that. Oh, that'd be great. We've had Ted Twinning in as well. And uh, you can go to upr.org, upr.org, and become a member of Utah Public Radio. Thank you.